0: Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are in Acts this morning. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and I, this is actually a two-part uh, message. Last week, Um, I called Acts, and we only did the first 11 verses, and I called it the unfinished volume. And uh, that's really, you know, if you read the the first chapter of Acts, actually, excuse me, if you read the last chapter of Acts, get to chapter 28, it ends kind of abruptly. It's not like, and they lived happily ever after, or this happened to Paul, or... It's like, what happened? You know, we don't know. And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit is still working through the church. Today we're part of the same age of the apostles, and uh, and so it's an unfinished volume. And like I shared last week, your name is in the volume. Your name, what you are doing in the body of Christ, is being recorded in heaven. And when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, those books are going to be opened. And what you and I have done for the body, and serving, and loving Him and sharing with him, with others about him that's we're going to be rewarded for those things and i you know i have said this many times before but you know i've heard people say well you know i don't need any reward just heaven's a reward enough but when you get before jesus and the bible says we're going to just throw whatever crowns we got we're going to just throw them down at his feet i'm going to want a billion crowns i want not st- i want i don't want to run out of crowns throw at Jesus because he's so worthy of them, and so yes you're going to want rewards and so Acts is an unfinished volume and your name is recorded in there that was last week this week we're going to take a little different turn and we're going to I call this a Hallmark Sunday so you know get your jammies out your popcorn your chocolate you know and of course you need a Kleenex box right because the Hallmark stuff so I'm just kidding Um, but I did call this a Hallmark Sunday Because what we're going to look at this morning are the hallmarks of the first church. Now, you'll notice I didn't say the early church. I mentioned the first church because after Christ's ascension, this group of believers, going to be about 120 of them, they comprise literally the first ever, the first church. And uh, there's a, a... uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's a law, but there's a, a principle in interpreting scripture. And one of the principles is the law of first mention. And so like if you go to the book of Genesis and you start reading the things in Genesis, those first time that anything's mentioned in the book of Genesis, it's significant. And so this first, what we're reading in chapter one about the church, this first church, it's significant. And so we're going to look at the hallmarks Of the first church. Now, what is a hallmark? Well, you guys probably know it's a greeting card company and a movie channel, but it's more than that. Um, This I didn't know, and uh, maybe you you already know. You guys are smarter than me. But a hallmark is an official mark stamped on gold and silver articles in England to attest their purity. So I guess that's where the word originally came from. But the definition that we are going to be using it's a distinguishing characteristic, a trait or feature. You can even call it the gold standard. And so we're going to be looking at this interesting traits or features of this first gathering of believers. And we're going to look at, is the church today like this? Are we doing these things? And so that's what we'll be looking at. Um, A couple hallmarks are actually described in volume one. Uh, Last week I mentioned that Luke's gospel is volume one. The book of Acts is volume two. They were both written by Luke. And uh, so back in volume one, actually, are a couple of the hallmarks are described. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, I want to read this to you. And he led them out as far as Bethany. This is speaking about Jesus. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed him that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And of course, when we get to the book of Acts chapter 1, we're kind of reading, you know, very similar stuff. But here's the scene that Luke paints in Luke chapter 4, 24, excuse me. Jesus had already ascended to heaven at that point. We know that these two angels, or two men in white, were they their angels. You know, the, the, the disciples are like, you know, watching Jesus ascend. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The very first thing that the very first church did after they put their jaw back into their mouth is they worshiped Jesus. That's the very first thing. The very first thing they do is worship Jesus. What does it mean to worship? I looked up the word and it means to kiss or to adore uh, to do obeisance, I don't know if that's the way, right way to pronounce it, but it means to bow or to, to pay homage to, to show respect, to fall or prostrate before, literally to kiss some towards someone or to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage. Now, aside from, you know, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, husband, a or wife, or something, we, we don't typically don't greet one another with a holy kiss, right? In fact, don't start doing that, please. <laughs> but, you know, other cultures, that's a very common thing. And in the Middle East, in the ancient, Oriole, oh, Oriole. <laughs> ancient Oriental culture, kissing as a way of greeting is a very common thing. If you were in, let's say, in, in the culture that the, the Jewish people found themselves in at that time, and you were saluting or giving a salutation or greeting to someone who is of equal status with you, you know, you're both carpenters or you're both kings or whatever. you're, you're at equals of equal rank, then you would kiss each other on the lips. And if you were if there was a little bit of a slight difference in rank, then instead of kissing on the lips, you'd kiss each other on the cheek. Now when someone was very inferior to someone else who is marked superior, that person would fall upon their knees. They would touch their forehead to the ground or prostrate themselves, and they would throw kisses uh, toward their superior. And that's the picture that the Greek writers, or excuse me, that the writers of the New Testament are using in the Greek. It's proskoneo, and it, it means to do reverence or homage to someone, usually by kneeling or prostrating oneself before him. And so... This is what they were doing. They were kneeling, they were worshiping Jesus. So, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ worshiped in churches today? And you might think, well, we just finished doing some worship, right? We, you, your first thought of worship is worship music. And and that is definitely an aspect of worship. But worship is much more than just music. Worship, you know, we worship the Lord with our attitude. We worship the Lord with our actions, our focus, and it's reflected in our praying. We worship in our praying, even in our giving. Giving is an act of worship. Serving is an act of worship. And of course, yes, also worship music. And so, is Jesus the focus in our services? In our attitudes? In the way we, do we come here with the thought of, I'm serving the Lord. This is why I'm here. I'm serving the Lord. Is that our focus. Is that our attitude? And, you know, talking about worship music, uh, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I look at what is popular worship music today and, you know, sometimes I think the focus is more on the worshiper. It's like how this is making me feel. Oh, Jesus makes me feel good and stuff. The focus is on me. The focus isn't on the Lord. And so um, sometimes I really struggle with that um, because I think Christ is not necessarily the focus of the worship. Not every, not all of music, but I, I do see that sometimes. And so the question is, is Christ being worshipped in churches today? I'll share just a side. I was, um, so uh, I gave my heart to the Lord back and, uh, I think it was 6th grade. It was Summer after 6th grade is when it was. And then I started kind of walking away from the Lord and got into a lot of trouble and, and was just totally backslidden. Went into the military thinking that would straighten me out and not, that didn't really straighten me out either. I was still backslidden. Um, and while I was in the... But partway through my enlistment, I completely rededicated my life to the Lord. That's a whole other story, but but uh, completely rededicated my life to the Lord and, and things changed from that point on. But before that, I was stationed at a Coast Guard station up in Oregon, a search and rescue station, and uh, I hadn't gone to church for quite a while, and one Sunday I'm like, you know, man, I think I, I just feel like I need to go to church or something. So here I go to this church, and I, and I picked out a Presbyterian church. I don't want, I'm not saying all Presbyterian churches are like this, but that's what I picked out. So I went to Presbyterian church. It was a small church, about the same size as ours here this morning. And uh, their worship music, you know what their first worship, worship music song was? Imagine by John Lennon. <laughs> I'm like, and I wasn't a believer. I mean, I was a believer, but I wasn't a walking with the Lord. But even in my backslidden state, I'm like, something's not right here. I don't know, man. I'm like, imagine all the people, you know, imagine no religion, you know, and stuff. I'm like, what's the focus? The focus is on humanity, the goodness of humanity. It's not focused on the Lord. And so that's a, it's, I think it's a valid question for us. Is Jesus Christ worships? So that's the very first thing that the church did. In verse 4 of chapter 1 of Acts, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So that's verse 4. Skip down to verse 12. And it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey. What does that mean? Well, according to tradition, that was, it was about three quarters of a mile. And it was what they thought was the distance between the camp of the Israelites and the tabernacle. So that's what they considered a a Sabbath day journey. So the second hallmark that I see here of the first church is that they are obedient to Christ's command. Because Jesus had told them, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And what's the next thing we see them doing? They're going to Jerusalem. They're obeying the Lord. They went back to Jerusalem and they waited for the promise of the Father. But it's not just obedience. Oh yeah, we've got to go back to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus told us to go. In Luke chapter 24, verse 40, 40 52, excuse me, it says, and they worshiped him, which we talked about earlier, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So it wasn't just like, oh, we got to go back. They were joyful to obey the Lord and go back to Jerusalem. The third hallmark I see is Joy. What gave them joy? I think it's what they were told in verse 11. The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They're like, he's coming back. It could even be later this afternoon. He's coming back. And so I think they were just filled with joy. Listen. You and I as believers, now I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I go through difficult situations in my life. I go through troubles in my life. There are times when I'm very sad or very hurt or, or disappointed or angry or whatever. And I have those emotions. But I don't stay in those emotions. You know, I can live my life as a Christian because Jesus doesn't force you to. I can live my life as a Christian moping all the time. I remember one friend of mine, I mean, I love the, I love the brother in the Lord, but every time I say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, man, you know, and it's like Eeyore, you know, he's a Christian Eeyore. Everything was negative. You can live your life as a Christian moping or griping and complaining or fighting or regretting. I knew a believer, an older gentleman, Love the Lord. He was a very bad sinner before he gave his heart to the Lord. And all what he did, whenever I talked to him, all what he did was he's regretted how he lived his life before. I'm like, man, you've been forgiven. You know, move forward. Move forward. Press on. Anyways, you can live your life even regretting or maybe longing for what the Lord hasn't allowed you to do or what you know, you know, you're still in this situation, whatever it is, you can fill in the blank and you're longing for another situation. You can You can be in that situation. Or mourning. There is a time to mourn. Mourning is appropriate. It's not not like we can't mourn because we're believers. No. Mourning is appropriate. But don't stay in that place. You can live your life in those ways. Or, like these first believers, they fix their hope on Christ's return in the coming kingdom. You know, we of all people should be the most joyful on this planet because we have a future. We have a hope. We have a home waiting for us. I like what David said in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you're bummed out this morning, and again, we have legitimate reasons to be bummed out from time to time. But just remember, man, heaven is your home. This place isn't your home. Heaven is your home. Jesus is coming back, and yes, it could even be today. It could even be today. Listen, joyful Christianity is contagious and it's attractive, you know. Uh, sour lemon Christianity, great, you know. Angry Christianity—it's attractive too, and con- or no, it's not attractive. It's contagious too, but it's like people are like, man, I don't want to catch what those guys caught because, man, it's that's bad. You know, I don't want that. You know, and they avoid us because of that. So joyful Christianity. So the second thing—they worship the Lord. And then we see that they're joyful and they were obedient to the Lord's commands. Now this fourth hallmark that I see, it's a little bit subtle. It's not super obvious, but hopefully when we go through it, you'll understand what I'm getting at. Back in Luke chapter 24 verse 52 and 53, it says, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. They were continually in the temple. You might think, wait a minute. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Why are they going back to the temple where all this stuff was taking place? You know, they've been set free from that. You see, this, what's taking place here, I think, is kind of foreign to our culture here in the United States. Because in the United States, the the civic life and our religious life they're pretty much separate, right? You can, you, you know, there's a lot of people that don't go to church and they're, you know, part of, part of our culture. In other cultures, religion and Christian, or not Christian, but religion and the civic life are melded together. It's hard to separate. I'll give you a perfect example. We had a gentleman here from Iran that was visiting for a while. And I remember talking to him. I said, so, are you Muslim. And he said to me, it kind of blew me away, but he said to me, he goes, everyone that's born in Iran is Muslim. (laughs) Because that's the culture. It's melded together. In Afghanistan today, I don't know if you read an article a week or two ago, you know, the, the Taliban, they're now in control of the, of the nation. And people that might not be very, uh, they might be secular Muslims right now, you know what they're doing? They're putting bumper stickers on their car with Quranic verses all over the place because the, they don't want to be pulled over by the Taliban. So they're trying to look like good Muslims. So they got all these Muslim, uh, Muslim <laughs> bumper stickers on their cars. It's even in the Bible. In John chapter nine, we read that the Jews had agreed together, the, the leaders of the synagogue and of the temple, that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. And you might say, big deal, you know, they're out of the synagogue. Well, what that meant, it not only meant that you couldn't worship the Lord in, in, in the temple or in the synagogue, but it also meant that now you were a marked person in the marketplace. Now you'd be someone who'd be shunned in the marketplace and in social gatherings. You'd be like, man, I don't want to be identified with that person because then I might get kicked out too. That's how infused it was. So we have this situation where Christ has ascend- ascended to heaven. The, the, the disciples, they, they know and they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they're going back to the temple continually praising and blessing God what is the hallmark that I'm referring to? And this is what I see in in this passage of scripture is that they remained in their culture and were witnesses to it. And I think it's a key thing. You know, they didn't form this holy huddle. Now we are going to talk about the fact that they are gathered in an upper room, but they didn't like sequester themselves. They weren't in a holy huddle separate from everyone while they waited for the promise of the father. Now, They did do that right after Christ's crucifixion. They huddled and they were in hiding at that point. But after the resurrection, man, everything changed. Jesus is alive, you know, and he is who he said he is. And and, uh, that changed everything. They continued to be a part of their society. Of course, they had a different outlook. Of course, the worship would have been different for them at this point, but they were witnesses where they were. You know, that reminds me in Mark chapter five, when Jesus is crossing the Red Sea, uh, Sea of Galilee, excuse me, and he gets to the area of the Gadarenes, and he starts ministering there, and there's a guy who's demon possessed, and you know the story. Um, it says in Mark five verse eighteen, and when he got into the boat, okay, so Jesus delivered the demons out of the legion of demons out of this man, right? He's in his right mind finally, and then it says here. When he got into the boat, this is Jesus, he's getting ready to go back across the Sea of Galilee. He who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your home, uh, go home to your friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and, for, and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus said, Hey, yeah, it'd probably be great to be with Jesus, but he said, You know what? Go back, be a witness where you are where you're planted, go back. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, there are times when a separation from friends' and family's influence is warranted, especially if, like, you're dealing with alcohol or drug abuse and stuff, and these people keep dragging you into it. There is a time and a place to be separate, to move, to get out of that situation. Typically, though... If you're born again and you're on fire and you're in love with the Lord, man, it's going it's to kind of create a natural separation because they're going to think you're weird and they don't want to be around you anyways. You know, that happened in my situation. But, um, but, you know, often the Lord wants us to be witnesses where he plants us, even if it's for a season. And that was a situation with the apostles. For a season, they were going to be witnesses there in Jerusalem. Well, look at verse 13 of Acts chapter 1. And when they had entered, this is speaking of Jerusalem, when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Almost every house in Jerusalem had an upper room. Most homes did, especially if you were wealthy or you were prominent. And uh, that large room, uh, upper, so it would be above the the living quarters, basically, it would be a place for family gatherings, for religious purposes, for prayer, for devotion. Uh, If you had a family member that died, you you would put them in this upper room, and that's where people would gather to view the body. Um, This upper room, we don't know which upper room, uh, we know that Jesus was with his disciples in an up room before his crucifixion. It could be the same place. They may maybe went back to the same place. That place, I think, was the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where they were staying uh, to celebrate that Passover. But in any event, whatever we don't know, someone provided a room, a place for them to stay. The fifth hallmark that I see here is that they were gathered together. They're all gathered together. And they're staying together. Now, if you read the different appearances when Christ appeared to the to the disciples after his resurrection, sometimes they're not all together. Thomas was a guy who was really hit and miss in his attendance, you know. Um, but he's there now. Peter, who denied Christ, remember he was all boastful, man, if all these guys deny you, I never will. And then he denies Christ. He's there. You know, if anybody, he may be like afraid to be around or not afraid, but feel ashamed to be around him. He's there. The only one who's absent is Judas. And there are others gathered besides the 12. In fact, we're told that there's about 120 people. And like I said, this is the first gathering of the church. They didn't have any Zoom meetings. Now, of course, you know, it wasn't invented then. But here they are all physically together. The point I wanted to make with this, you are responsible, I am responsible for my own Christian growth and maturity. So are you. You know, I, I can't do anything for you to help you mature in Christ or to develop your relationship with Christ. You're responsible for your own personal maturity as a believer. However, we did not become members of a body to be isolated from one another. I mean, this last few years, man, that was a struggle. And and for good reason. I mean, I understand, I understand, you know, the situation. But that was hard, that was hard. Listen, a body, a body part not connected to the body is going to die. It, it, it won't survive. And I think the same thing is true spiritually. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to be praying for one another, lifting each other's burdens, and exercising our spiritual gifts. Because we all have different gifts that we've been given. Therefore, the edification of the body, they're not for you to just like, I've got this gift and look at me, I'm more spiritual than everybody else. No, the whole purpose for the gifts is to, this body is to encourage this body, to edify this body. So it's important that we gather together. In fact, that's what the writer in Hebrews says. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. The day is approaching, folks. (laughs) It's so much more important that we are involved in each other's lives. The sixth thing I see is prayer and supplication. Prayer was a major component of their gathering. It wasn't like, you know, they had their gathering, their potluck and whatever, and then they had a little prayer thing at the end. Prayer was a major component of the early church. The first church was a praying church. And notice that they continued in prayer and supplication. I was thinking about it. What, what were they praying for? Don't you, don't you wonder what were they praying for? I mean, think about it. Sometimes when when I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, show me what I should do. You know, show me your will and stuff. Think about it. The Lord had already told them what he was gonna what he wanted them to do. He told them what they would do what they would be doing. They'd be witnesses for him. He told them where they would be doing it. They'd be in Judea, or excuse me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He told them that he was gonna baptize them with the Holy Spirit in and he even told them when, in a very short while, which turned out to be, I think, something like ten days or something like that. We're not told what, what specifically they prayed for, but you know what we're told? Is how they prayed. That's the key. How did they pray with one accord? Now, that doesn't mean that they all gathered into Peter's Honda for a prayer meeting. You know, it's, it's I know, it's lame. It's lame, I'm sorry. <laughs> what does one accord mean? It means with the same mind or spirit or with the same passion. They all had the same Passion. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That word agree is a word uh, symphonale, and it, it's where we get the word symphony. So think about that. When you agree together, it's like a symphony. Corporate prayer with one accord is a spiritual sympathy, symphony. And each one of us, as we're praying, it's our instrument that we're we're raising up to the Lord. And together, it's like music in the Lord's ears. That's what corporate prayer is. Prayer aligns my heart with the heart of the Lord. If I'm praying according to God's will and his heart, it pleases the Lord, it blesses the Lord, and it glorifies him. He's worshipped through prayer. And so we see this, man, they were, they were united with one accord in prayer, and they continued in it. The next thing that I see, I think it's, to me it's fascinating, was that compared to before the resurrection, now we see humility. We see it in spades in chapter 1. Remember before? they were trying they were always arguing who's the greatest or lord can i sit next to you when you're in your kingdom you know and they were always trying to compete with one another who was the best who was more important they were jealous peter was jealous of john when peter when the lord said you know basically told peter how he was going to end his life or his life was going to end and john's like or peter's like well, what about that guy he said don't worry about him worry about yourself I'm paraphrasing. You won't find that if you look it up in a word thing, but understand. There's no competing. There's no posturing. There's no jealousy. You know what? Christ is risen from the dead, and He's coming back. That was their heart. There's all, all that other stuff. Just it doesn't really matter. It just it's, that's not our focus. Christ is returning. Even before the resurrection. Jesus' physical brothers have been his half-brothers. They doubted that he was the Messiah. You can read it throughout the Gospels. And they derided him. But now we see after the resurrection, man, they're now gathered with the believers as believers. In fact, two of them we know by name, James and Jude, they wrote books in the New Testament. What a transformation. What a difference. And, And here's a big thing. There were no celebrities in the first church. Think about that. Nobody's a celebrity. And why do I say that? Because Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there among them. I mean, who of anybody would have been like, can I get your autograph or, you know, or can I get a a selfie next to you, Mary, you know? Um, No. She's there just with the other believers, gathered with them. In the first church, Mary is not being prayed to. In fact, she's with the others praying to God. The last recorded words of Mary at the wedding in Cana is this whatever he, Jesus says, do it. The focus was whatever Jesus says, do what Jesus says. That's the last recorded words of Mary in the Bible. She was not a perpetual virgin. James, Jude, and there were sisters, we don't know their names, but there were sisters born to Mary and Joseph after the birth of Jesus. And you know, Mary is blessed. Above all women. Above all women. I mean, think about it. She's the one that bore the Messiah of Israel. That's a blessing. But Mary was a sinner too. And I know that runs contrary to some people's beliefs. Mary was a sinner. Because when Jesus, when the angel Gabriel announces the birth of the Messiah to, to Mary, and, and we have Mary's, I think it's called the Magnificat or whatever, Magnificat, you know, where she's praying uh, to, uh, responding to this. In Luke 1.47, she says this, And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So Mary's not the Savior. She's not a co-redemptress with Jesus. And she's right there. There's no celebrities in the early church. I love that. Their humility towards each other produced a beautiful unity among them. And unity among believers glorifies God. Disunity grieves the spirit of God. It grieves the spirit of God when we are disunite, disunited with each other. When we don't have those, when, when, when we're griping or complaining or when we're, we're fighting with one another and stuff, that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Well, let's move on here. Verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field uh, with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. By the way, we have uh, filled donuts in the back, so I just want to I Sorry. Verse 19. I shouldn't do things like that. I'm sorry. And it became known to all I'm not looking up at my wife. Notice that. <laughs> She's going to be like, oh, man. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Acheldama that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What's fascinating about this is Peter is standing up. And he's speaking. He, this, is, this is Peter saying all these things. I believe Peter is responding in obedience to what the Lord told him before he was crucified. It's recorded in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And I think Peter's just being obey, obedient to what the Lord had said. Strengthen your brethren. And notice nobody else is like, ah, sit down, man. Yeah? You're the guy that you're the guy that denied Christ, man. Who are you to talk to us? They're all they're all recognizing, because they were there when the Lord said this to Peter. They're all recognizing, hey, the Lord's raising this person up. And so Peter is, I think, responding in obedience to what the Lord told him. So The eighth thing that I see that I would call the hallmark of the first church. Only true believers who are sincere in their faith are part of that first church. Think about it. Who is not there? Judas. Judas was one of the twelve disciples. In fact, Jesus prayed. He spent all night in prayer. And Judas is one of the disciples that Jesus chose. Of course, knowing that he would betray him, knowing that he would, what he would do, and yet Jesus still chose him. Jesus even washed the feet of, Jesus, of Judas, knowing that a few minutes or a few hours later he'd be, he'd be betrayed by him. Judas was given the position of treasurer among them. We, that's in John 12, verse 6. He was so obsessed with the love of money that the Bible says that he ended up becoming a thief. So he was the the treasurer of the group. Whatever donations came in, he, he was kind of in charge of it, but he was pilfering from it. Outwardly, Judas looked like a good man with concern for the poor. When Mary was anointing Jesus' feet, it was Judas who said, hey, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? I mean, that sounds really noble. Why are we wasting it on Jesus? Man, think how many people we could have fed with this. Judas had the respect of all the apostles. No one suspected that Judas was the betrayer. No one did. They had no idea that he was a thief and an apostate. He had an outward religiosity that fooled even the other 11. Outwardly, he looked like someone who was a very moral guy. He was someone who seemed very honest, very trustworthy, very good, very generous. That's what he seemed like on the outside, but his heart was corrupt, and he was a hater of Christ. Listen, Judas was not a saved man. The other disciples were saved. Judas wasn't. I mentioned this last week in John chapter 20, verse 22. This is the point my own personal opinion when the disciples are born again believers at that point is when Jesus it says in John 20:22 20, and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit Judas wasn't there the other 11 were what had Judas done he had hung himself you know it's interesting Judas had remorse he even admitted his sin he acknowledged his sin But he never went the next step to turn to Christ. He never turned to Christ. So this is my point. The first church that's, I think, the hallmark for all churches, they didn't have good church people that weren't born again. Everybody. All 120 of them were born again believers. Now, understand, I'm not saying, hey, if you don't believe Jesus, you're out of here, man. Get out of here. We don't want you here. No, that's not what I'm saying. If If you're skeptical, if you don't even believe that God exists, you are welcome here. Everyone is welcome here. It doesn't matter where you're at in your walk, if you're struggling or not, you're welcome in the church. But I think it's interesting that the first church had none of that hypocrisy, had none of that fakeness. They were genuine believers, all 120 of them. The tenth hallmark is in what I see Peter does. Now, he's taking the lead here, I think, in obedience to what Jesus said. Because he's he's standing up first. The Lord basically said, Hey, when you're when you return to me, strengthen the brethren. So he's he's starting to take that lead. But he's also looking at Old Testament scriptures. He has the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. He has the Holy Spirit inside of him at this point. And he's able, the, the Bible says that Jesus opened their eyes to understand scriptures. So now he's able to discern, he's reading, he's reading the Old Testament scriptures, and he recognizes the prophecies concerning Judas. He's reading and goes, ah, oh, man, that's Judas. That was the guy that we, you know, were right alongside And what does he do then? He applies those scriptures that he's just read to their present situation. And he tells them, hey guys, this is what the Bible says. We need to do this. We need need to choose another disciple. We need to choose another witness with us. Now, you can go to different commentaries and get different conclusions and some commentators will look at this passage of Scripture and they'll say, yeah, man, there's Peter again. Foot and mouth, you know, impetuous Peter. He's just he's just running ahead of the Lord. And some people say that, and maybe you believe that too. That's fine. It's not a salvation thing or anything like this. Some people think that Peter, as usual, is just acting impulsively instead of waiting. And then they go, listen, they basically gave the Lord two choices. Lord, here's this guy and this guy. Which one do you want to choose from? You know, sometimes I do that, right? Lord, it's the the chocolate ice cream or the vanilla. Which one do you want me to have? And he doesn't want me to have any of it, but, you know. (laughs) All right, that applies to my situation. But anyways. (laughs) Matthias is chosen. And some people will say, well, it appears that that was not the Lord's will. That actually it was Paul should have been the person. That he was born after the fact. Um, It's interesting as Paul was not a witness to the resurrection or was not a witness from the baptism of John onward but some people think that Paul was the one that the Lord chose instead of Matthias and one of the things that people say is well if you look Matthias is never mentioned in scripture so it has to have been a bad situation well this is my observation in my opinion it's you know you get a a dollar fifty and you can get a small coffee somewhere with it but It's true, Matthias is never mentioned in the Scriptures. But guess what? (laughs) Neither are Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew. I mean, almost most of the disciples are not mentioned anymore in Scriptures, in addition to Matthias. And Scriptures interpret Scriptures. And you never see in Scriptures, and if you do, you can point it out to me later, you never see in Scriptures where this is condemned. Where it's a, it's it's painted as a bad thing. Where it's just a factual thing that that we're, that's told us. It's never said, and you know, Peter had to rep- or Peter had to repent of it later. Whatever. It's it's never presented as a wrong choice. And you know, to be truthful, it could be that maybe Paul was the one that was supposed to be that the Lord was selecting uh, instead of Matthias. But what I see here, and this this really just I love this. They're reading the scriptures. They're interpreting the scriptures. And they're interpreting it accurately, actually, because yeah, those were pointing to Judas. And they're taking a step of faith based on prayer. Because remember, they were praying. It wasn't like they're just like, let's let's choose us and then let's pray out. No, they, they've been praying, so they're seeking the Lord, they're seeking his will. And I think they're taking a step of faith based on scripture through prayer. What if they were wrong? Man, what if? How many times have I done things? Have I prayed? I I really feel like this is the Lord's will and I prayed about it. And, man, I I think this is, I'm reading scripture. I think this is what the Lord wants me to do. And then later I find out it really wasn't his will. Man, I love the fact that God doesn't clobber me over the head and say, you stupid. Man, when are you going to get it right? You know, if you never make a choice, if you never take a step of faith and go, you know, this I think this is what Scripture is teaching, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this step. If you never do that, you probably will never make a wrong choice. You're like, cool. The thing is, you'll also never grow in your faith. You'll never grow in, in taking steps of faith. We're to walk by faith. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so that's what I see here. They're interpreting Scriptures... And they're accurately interpreting it. And then they're applying it to their situation. And what if they were, and they're never condemned. It's never condemned in scripture. And what if they're wrong? Hey, the Lord's going to work it out. I've made choices in the past and the Lord's just like, it's just, it's like, okay, I haven't been condemned over it. I've, I learned from it. Hopefully I learned from those things. But, you know, even when we do make bad choices, the Lord is merciful and gracious. And what I see here in this first church I see a church that's praying, they're studying scripture, and they're applying it the best that they know in their circumstances. And that's all, that's all we can do. That's all you and I can do. The growth comes in the stretching. We're going to close with the 11th hallmark, and it's actually in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1. Was filled with the Holy Spirit, man. Well, how bad we need that today. The church was filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk much more about that as we're looking going into chapter two next week. But you know, looking back at all these things we discussed, and you know, and we could say, okay, does this apply to Calvary Chapel Rochester? And you know, we can critique it, and, and we should. We, we should. In fact, I was doing that this week. Lord, uh, or am I as a pastor doing this with our church? But it applies to us individually as well. It's not just me. It's not all on me. It's on you too. Are you are you doing the steps of the first church, the first Christian are those your hallmarks? Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. I'll have the worship team coming on. Up.